George C. Wolfe sat down with moderator Hope Clark for a one-on-one -on -one interview in April of 1994. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. George. Yes. <laughs> How did you get started as a director? What made you put down your pen, or were you always a writer-director? Actually, I'm... I started out when, when in college. I mean, I, I, I directed something in high school, which was uh, interesting. But I went into college as a as a actor and a designer. Except I couldn't draft, so I so I stopped being a designer. Uh, I was I liked I liked making the shapes and doing all of that stuff, but I didn't have the patience for drafting. So then I started directing, and, uh, and so I was an actor and a director. And then I was uh, I think I really wanted to be a writer, but I didn't have the courage to be one. So, and when I started directing plays, I wanted to do plays uh, at the time that were about black people, but most of the plays, this is in the mid-70s, that, that were part of the canon were social realism and, and you know, four walls and, and anguish and all that sort of stuff that didn't, that wasn't theatrically exciting to me because I was very interested in Japanese theater. I was, I was, I, I, I wanted to, I, I was interested in overtly theatrical forms. So I started writing to give myself something to direct that would be challenging, I think, which is how I really sort of started writing. And then, and then the writing sort of took off, and I would write and direct. And then I came to New York, and they said, well, you can't do both. So then I focused in on the writing. And then I was doing the writing, writing, writing. And then I said I wanted to direct. They said, well, a writer shouldn't direct, a, a director shouldn't direct his own work, if he's a writer, and they just separate in distance and all this sort of stuff. And so then I went off and started directing my stuff, you know, like with, uh, with spunk uh, pieces. And then they said, oh, well, you can direct, so why don't you write and direct? So it's, so this sort of how it happens. So I've, I've always sort of flip-flopped back and forth, and, and I sort of think that, that there's an aspect of my personality that, that, that likes being in the room and likes talking a lot. And likes taking charge, and likes and likes playing with other people, and that's the director side. And then there's as a person, and there's supposed the writer side, which is actually sort of a, has this hermit impulse, and it sort of actually sort of gets quiet and calms down some. And that's sort of the writer. So that that's sort of how those two came together, and they sort of like salt and pepper shakers. They sort of different parts of my brain, I guess. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, George. Okay. Okay. Little did know I was a straight person for Hope's joke. No, 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 no. Uh, because you wear many hats, writer, director, and producer, is there one area you feel strongest about that you're more drawn to? I think it's easiest for me to direct because I think, like, my outward personality, as I was just stating earlier, my outward personality, which, which I have easy access to, is the sort of energy that's the director. Um, the writer is, is, I love, but it requires calm and isolation, and right now my life isn't particularly calm or isolated, so I really have to work real hard to try to create that level of isolation. The thing with, with running the festival is really fascinating to me, and it's, it's really exciting to me. It's not fun, but it's very exciting 
because of, um, of the ability to create a room where other people can go inside and do what they do. And, and, and I really like doing that a lot because it feels very sort of, it, it's, it's very interesting because as a producer, you have to have all this extraordinary sort of sense of, of self and determination and drive and going to a room going, hi, I'm here, everybody, okay, da, 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 and do all this sort of stuff. But it's really a very selfless thing because you really are doing it for yourself. You, you, I, I feel myself becoming this force, not because I'm really interested in doing it, but because I, by virtue of being this force, I can get people to give me money so I can give it to artists to go into a room and play. So I'm really fascinated by that, and, and, I, and, I'm, and I like doing that. Um, so you're more drawn to that at this time? At this time, than... simply because I'm still learning it, and yeah. it's new, and it's, and, and it's fascinating, and it's fascinating working with directors, and when am I being smart with another director, and when am I invading and intruding, and I'm still trying to figure out that difference. And it's, it's interesting, and the same thing with a writer. When am I being helpful to a writer? When am I going ultimately saying, if I were writing this, I would do this. So it's, so I'm still, so it's, so I'm still learning those boundaries. So it's, so it's newer to me. So it's like a new, a new outfit that I'm wearing that I think I look good in, but I'm not really sure. So I have to keep on wearing it until I figure out if it feels good on my body. So that's newest. So I'm more interested in that because it's newest. Directing, I'm sort of like, I mean, Angels in America almost killed me. So it's, and then following that, I mean, Jelly was like, Okay. And I said, okay, it's going to be about three more years before I'm back on Broadway. That'll be fine. I'll recover by that time. And the next year, it was sort of like, okay, it's America. Sure, seven and a half hours, no problem. And I, I realized I spent seven months in the Walter Fair Theater last year. So it was sort of like, and, and then Twilight, which was another thing. It's, so I, I, I want the director person to go on a nice long vacation uh -huh. and rediscover how much he really loves going into a room and talking to writers and actors. Mind you, I'm starting a workshop of a play tomorrow as a director. But... I think that my director really is looking forward to a wonderful a vacation. vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have mentors? Is there someone that you really look up to, you admire? As, as a director or as just in general? Just in general. I sort of admire, like, one of my favorite artists is, I think it's Tony Morrison, is just my favorite artist, period, on the planet, because, because she, she takes a world that's like this, and then she twists it, and then you go, oh, I didn't know that was there. And then she twists it, and you go, oh, I didn't know that was there. And then she keeps on twisting it. Oh, I didn't know that was there. And, and she just keeps on doing that until you realize you don't know anything, so you might as well surrender mm -hmm. and go inside the world and figure out what's going on. So I really, so I, I love her for doing that, and I like doing work that does that. And I like creating characters and, and working on projects. Twilight was sort of like that, particularly, because it was like, oh, from this perspective, it's this. From this perspective, it's this. So... So, so I, I, I really admire her for her ability to do that. I admire people who, who can, in, in the theater, I think, who, who create sort of exquisite, very specific moments. Uh, you know, even not a whole production, but if there's one moment where I went, oh my God, how did they pull all that together in that one gesture? That's, that's you know, so I don't, I don't have like, oh my God. Like, Someone oh my God. who was your guide, in other words. You didn't have that. I don't. I think so. I read a lot of Breck, a whole lot of Breck, and I was sort of really into him. Um, no, I just, you know, I just, in terms of, no, I just, I just read as much mm -hmm. about people, about their work and about them 
as artists and the kind of wars and struggles and journeys that they went through. So that therefore, when I find myself in those situations, I know that I'm not just sort of a unique, fabulous creature who's the only person going through this or who has ever gone through this. You know, there isn't somebody who I just went, oh, I want to be that when I grow up. Uh, no. How did your relationship with, with Joe Papp develop? I know. but And what did you gain from that relationship? Well, <laughs> well I first, um, we, we were doing cross, we were doing Color Museum at a crossroads. Yeah. And um, two people from the public came out to see it. Morgan Janess was one of them. And this woman's name, who I always forget, it's really awful because she was one of the key people who, who went back and said, you guys have to do this play, um, came to see it. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, so they came out to say they thought it was really wonderful, and uh, Joe uh, read it and called Lee and Eileen Richardson, who was the director of the project, in for a meeting. And I remember he was he was sitting behind his desk, and it was summer, and he had this cigar. So that if you wanted to hear him, you had to lean in to hear what he was saying. I said, now this is brilliant power at play here. And, uh, and, and I remember sort of, sort of kind of doing a George parody. So I, so I started talking, I started moving my hands around like what I do, and I started going, oh, well, this is a strange little creature here. So um, and it, would just, it would just sort of, and, and so then we sort of clicked in, in, in that meeting, and at the beginning of the meeting, he said, which I just saw Lee recently, and he did, I don't remember this, he said, I have 10 projects I'm thinking about doing, yours is one of them. And, and by the time we finished that meeting, he had decided that, that he was going to do it. And it was very fascinating because when, when, when Color Museum was happening, because Joe had this love for writers, I think he had a much more complicated relationship with directors, um, much more complicated relationship with directors. So he would come up to me and say, who says that line in Three Sisters when da 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 And there's all these little texts. I go, da 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 and then we walk away and it's all these, all these other sorts of tests that were happening that were, that were actually very funny. And I remember one time I was, I have very pink, orange, whatever, lips that are just naturally that way. And one time I was walking down the flight of stairs with him and he went, stop me. He went, are you wearing makeup? <laughs> I went, no. Then he stopped me, put his hands on my shoulder and said, if you did, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, thank you, Joe. <laughs> and and, and so, so, so that was that, and we did it at the Color Museum there, and it was, it was, it was really wonderful. And, uh, and then um, brought him jelly. We, I brought him jelly, and uh, this is actually an interesting story, and, um, and uh, Pam Cosway and Margot Lyon went in the meeting, and, and he, he played Joe, and he sat on his desk, and he talked to them, like, really these fledgling, you know, people wanting to do this show and talk about this in the script, and this wasn't working, and this wasn't working. This one, I was just the writer on the project. And, uh, and I had written this sort of, like, first act, and at the end of it, I wrote this character that, at the end of the first act, this character appears and has black dust in his hand and blows black dust, black chimney dust, all over Jelly. And that was how the act went in, and his character was the chimney man, the introduction of the chimney man. So Joe said, this doesn't feel like you. This doesn't feel like you. This doesn't feel like you. But this character, this, this chimney man character, he's really interesting. He's really interesting. So I went, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought he was like showing off or whatever, playing I'm, I'm, I'm big stuff for Pam and Margot. And, um, and, and didn't express, uh, you know, we'll talk, fix it, fix it, do whatever. We'll, we'll talk about it later. 
So I went away, and as I started to work on the project a little bit more, the chimney man, I realized that I had gone through a whole draft to find that character, but that character was really what the piece was about in, on a certain level. So I went back and did the version of it, and we started doing a workshop out at mm-hmm. the Mark Table Forum. We did several workshops of it out there. And then I went, I said, Joe, you know that, that character of the chimney man? Do you remember how you pointed out that character of the chimney man? And uh, he said, yeah. I said, well, he's now a key character in it. He said, well, do you want to know why? I said, <laughs> I said, why, Joe? He said, because that's you. When I read that play, you weren't, you, your point of view was not in that play. And when you found that chimney man character, you found the chance for you to say the things that you wanted to say, which is true. And I think he was making it up as he was saying it. <laughs> but it sounded good. <laughs> but I think it was, it was, he was completely and totally, totally true. I mean, there's so many. We, we with Martha Clark, Marilyn Miller, Gail, his wife and I went to Poland together on a, uh, some sort of cultural exchange. It was an incredibly ridiculous visit, but it was really wonderful. And uh, I, Polish actors did scenes from the Color Museum in Polish, which was <laughs> extraordinary. Actually, it was so fascinating to see another completely different culture claim it. And it was really fascinating. And then when I was invited back to the public as an uh, artistic associate, it was, uh, I remember we had just done the Caucasian Chalk Circle. And, uh, and we worked like hell on that, as you well know. And it yes, was really, we did. It was really, it was really, I think, a very exquisite production. And, and it, was, it was expensive for the public. It had a cast of 12 or so. And we were in previews for about a month uh, because I worked slowly. i get things quick, but then i worked slowly fixing it. And, um, and and he he was and he closed it and he was going to close it because it's expensive and all this sort of stuff and the reviews were were good to all right to why are you taking Brecht and putting him in the Caribbean and all this other sort of stuff um, and I would I, and 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 I and I, I I spoke with him about it and I, I said I said but you I, I did this show for a very specific reason because not just to do a show but to try to attract another kind of audience and see if they can find themselves inside a Brecht and that didn't happen because we're we're closing, and um, and you know, we, and, and we have a bunch of conversations about it, and, and he, you know, and then he was talking about you, you know, you're you've grown a lot, you you you're, you're becoming a leader, all this sort of stuff. But I remember also the, the last conversation I had with him, which I haven't really talked, which was uh, I got to an argument with someone at the public. This is when he was very ill, maybe about two, three weeks before he died, and he uh, and he said, he said. Uh, he says, I wish I could jump ahead a year from now. Because he, he was not, in my mind, he was planning on not dying. In a, I mean, literally, he thought he was going to go through the sick bout, and then I think he was, he was going to come back. And, because and, he did that so many times. He came back you so know, many times. So, and so he said, you know, I wish I could jump ahead to about you know, a year from now to see how you're going to be a part of this organization. And it was, it was, it was like, I, so I, you know, I went, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, and it's, you know, it's sort of really, literally, a little bit over a year when the yeah. appointment came through. So I don't know. I'm not saying it was divine or anything like that, but it's just fascinating. You know, it's a very fascinating man. And, 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 and the thing which is what I think he did so extraordinarily, and, and a lot of people have very complicated stories about him to tell. I don't have any of those stories because I think I came into that theater at the exact perfect time because he was uh, being, ext- he was extremely generous with me. I remember John Guerre when the appointment announced that Joanne and Michael Grice and David Weisman were going to be there, he said, so which sister are you? Are you Goneril? Or are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so, but the, the, the one thing which, I, which he did, which I think was really, truly extraordinary, is that as, when you, as, you, as you're working, you, you believe 
that what that your work is important or that your work is good, and and you and and you carry it around inside of you somewhere. You carry it inside, or you go around talking about it. But somewhere you, there's still, regardless of how confident you are, there's still this little piece of you that questions. And and the thing which which, which Joe had an extraordinary ability to do was to say, "You're important, and you should be doing this, and you're matter." And even though if you had had a thought, and you would go, "That's a smart thought." But he would then hold up, you would say to yourself, I just said something smart. He would then hold up this reflection because he was his figure and said, that was a very smart thing you said. And it, it affirmed you. It, he, he didn't, it wasn't so much making you, but it was affirming your confidence in yourself, which is an incredibly valuable thing, particularly when you're trying to do your work in New York City. You know, so yeah. um, it's, it's, he was amazing. He's a very funny, he's a very funny person. When you were given the opportunity to run the Shakespeare Festival, what were your major goals or what are your major goals for the theater? Uh, how do you see things progressing? Well, I, it's, I feel like I'm in, I told somebody the other day, I feel like I'm in the middle of a bad gothic novel <laughs> with this mansion and you clean out one room. You go, my God, there's beautiful wood here and God, this is a gorgeous, incredible room. What an incredible space to live in. And then you go, What's that little crease in the wall? Oh my God, that's a door. And you open up the door and it leans down to a very dark, dusty new wing of the building <laughs> that you didn't even know was there. And you go, okay, here we go again. So it's like unraveling because it's an institution that's been around for 40 years. And it's like they have, they have policies there that have been there for the longest time. And the other day we had some, some customers were complaining about the uh, why you have to wait in line if you're going to if you're going to get these discount tickets. If you know you got ten tickets free, why do we have to wait around six hours to know the ten tickets? And the woman at the box office went, "Well, because I haven't got a clue." <laughs> <laughs> That's just the way it's always been done. And so you go, "Well, no. If we have ten tickets that are that are online that they, and, and, and there are ten people waiting, do we know we're going to have any more tickets? Give the people the tickets, let them go home." So so it's just trying to unravel. Policies that once upon a time were created for some incredibly immaculate reason that have that reason is no longer there anymore. So that's so it's it's just unearthing. I feel like it's unearthing this institution all the time. The the, the main thing I wanted to a couple of things I wanted to do. I wanted to that I that I, almost most of my friends are in fact artists. So I wanted to create this place, and I, I I like artists, you know, even though they're incredibly exhausting. Just as I guess I'm an exhausting one too. But uh, I wanted to create a place where they could come and, and work. And um, and also in and I, I I just sort of used in many respects my career as in some key way as a model because I was able to at crossroads or at the public mm-hmm. or at, at the market forum say I need a room I need a room to go in and play I don't know what the hell I'm doing I have this impulse and I want to follow the impulses I don't want to go into the room knowing everything I want to go into a room and see where my impulses lead and and. And, and that's how I think you do really interesting work, because otherwise you, otherwise you start to repeat yourself. If you're not allowed to be stupid, you end up doing dumb work. If Repeating you, yourself. Exactly. So, 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 so that was really important. So, so one of the things I want to do, which we've set aside, is the Lou Esther Theater, turn it into Lou Esther Lab, where it's a room where people play. And we've done like a number of Shakespeare labs there with young directors trying to cultivate American classical directors. We're doing a whole series of readings there. It's a room where no critics and no audiences, by and large, are allowed so that people can play, trying to create a healthy 
place to experiment in New York City because New York City, I mean, it's, it's so everybody, we're going to work on this wonderful project, we're going to work on this wonderful project, we're going to work on this wonderful project. It's going to be about the journey, it's going to be about discovery. And three seconds after you begin the rehearsal, in, on somewhere in the back of everybody's mind is, when is what day is the times coming? Mm-hmm. And it starts to inform every single decision. It starts to inform behavior, starts to be, inform how people work, how people go on a discovery, and you have to create this whole other fake structure to get people to go on the journey of discovery. So the idea of setting aside a room where that could happen on a regular basis was very attractive to me. I'm also very interested in those five theaters. I'm trying to create a sixth theater space, a cabaret space there. But in those five theaters, trying to have as many of the stories that exist in New York City and in turn this country and in turn the world live inside of those stories because I think that somehow we can't call it American theater if it's not colliding. If, if, it, if, if it doesn't look like all of us, then it's not about any of us. Um, so, thank you. But, uh, um, Toledo. Anybody from Toledo? In the <laughs> so, I mean, and that's really, and, it's, and that's not just, I don't think that's just, an, that's not deeply evolved. I just think it's sort of like smart because we need audiences and people fundamentally only go to see plays that look like them. Not even not literally, but you know, people are going through certain emotions or, or have certain rhythms or are concerned with certain issues that they're concerned with, then they make themselves available to the journey. So by trying to present this sort of collision of ideas, which we deal with in this city, that's why this whole discussion about non-traditional casting is the most insane discussion on the planet Earth because nobody asks you who you want to sit next to on a subway. You have no choice <laughs> because you're a part of this world. So that somehow, you know, three men in power in an article in Bruce Weber's column are going to discuss the merits of, I will let you in, but it's really a violation of my reality. Look at your reality. When you step foot outside your door. So, so if I can, once again, and, it's, and, and I'm speaking this from like some evolved thought process or as a person of color, but just sort of like, what city am I in? And this city I am looks like this. So, okay, well, if I want my theater to be available and to be about something other than theater, but to be about the city it's a part of, then I need to make what happens on this stage look like the people in that city in some way, not every single thing, but so that therefore, and maybe this looks like this section of the city, and this looks like this section of the city, but it's just very important that that collision happen because it doesn't happen. I mean, in New York, that's what I love about the lobby at the public, which is my favorite thing, because it's one of those watering holes where all kinds of people gather. Central Park is another one. Just where, because right now we're also segmented and compartmentalized, that, that to have that building breathing in an exciting, dangerous way, the way the city breathes in a primarily exclusively dangerous way, is very attractive to me. So I have very, so that's a very important agenda. And also just to try to um, really foster and cultivate, at this point in time, American talent. And uh, American classical directors is very important to me. Because every single time we do something the Delacorte or whatever, we find ourselves jumping across the river of yeah. the ocean. And it's, it's, uh, that's, that's fine, but I don't, I, I, there, there's got to begin to be some other kind of investment. Otherwise, we're going to keep on jumping across the ocean. And somehow you are not building up anything. You're just usurping something that's already been built. So I think it's, you know, that. As a director, could you describe your process of developing a new work? Or do you have a process of developing a new work? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I, mean, I do you have a set process? Is that something... I mean, I don't. I mean, do you... I don't think there is such a thing, is there? 
in developing new work. I mean, I don't have a process, but I, I, I think my, I, I've discovered certain things about, about how, how I get intrigued by something. I, first of all, I get intrigued by something if I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. If somebody presents something to me and I can't figure out how the hell to do it, if I can figure it out, then I know I shouldn't do it. But if I have to go, wait a minute, how are we going to tell this one? Then, 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 I'm, then I'm intrigued and know that I should at least go on the journey to try to figure it out. Then I, then, and then I try to figure out what are the, because I think theater, it's like I have this little pet sort of thing. TV is about characters. Film is about story. And theater is about ideas. And so, so that therefore, if, it's a, if, if I'm working on something about the theater, I want to know what is the idea. So that therefore, if I, if I know what the idea is about, I know how to start to think specifically about the characters mm-hmm. and the moments so that I realize what they're, why they're there and what they should be illuminating. I remember it's, um, and what's, what's, what's incredibly sort of fascinating and frustrating to me how some things come just like that and other things you have to crawl through broken glass before you discover. I remember in the very first draft of, uh, of, of anything having to do with jelly, I wrote this scene where these three, it was like, it was, I think it was these three, it was, at the time it was three Storyville whores push a bed around the stage while Jelly and Anita have a whole series of scenes which revealed the beginning of the disintegration of their relationship. And as it ended up on stage, it was a, it was a, very, it was a very wonderful, smart, sort of exquisite number. And that was there from the very beginning. Then there were other things that was just sort of like, Oh my God! Will we ever yeah. unearth this? So yeah. that—that's really fascinating to me. It's just why some things read and some other things don't. In terms of any other process, I think I think it's also what's, I think it's really important, which everybody. But I think it's very very true is to get is to try to one get try to get everybody to see the project the way that you see it, but at the same time be available to alternative ways of seeing it, which other people bring to it. And that's a peculiar sort of blend because if you're completely available, then it looks like too much. But at the same time, if you're rigid, you're, you're canceling out very smart impulse. I remember I was directing something in college. It was this number. It was this, a, a play that I had written, this play called Black Play, which was sort of angry and urban before I was either of the above. And, <laughs> and, uh, and there was this number that, that we were trying to get to work, and the, and the number was like... Something was plodding along like this, plodding along like this, plodding along like this. And the cast was over. I was working with the composer or something like this. And the cast was over at another piano, making noise, just being assholes, and just making all this noise. And it just drives me crazy. I said, you guys stop? They go back, okay, now how are we going to solve this? 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 Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? They were still making noise. Hey, hey come on, guys, stop. What if we try this? What if we try this? What if we try this? And I went, will you please? And then all of a sudden, I heard they were making the number work. They were fixing it over in the corner because they, they were messing around singing. And I just went, oh, this is what we're going to do. And, and, it, was, and, it, and it happened very early on. And it was, it was like so that, so that signals come from anywhere. And it's then I didn't have to take that, process it through my sifter so it came out with this unified vision. But it's, when you're in a room, I think it really is sort of like this incredible, like, sort of like being in this sort of like test tube. That's why you have to be really careful, I think, to keep out certain kinds of people, mm-hmm. like money people, certain kinds of people who will bring the wrong kind of concerns into the room because there's this breathing, invisible thing called the scene that you're working on or the moment that you're working on. And if everybody's available to it, it's going to happen. If somebody else is bringing, 
a, a cynicism or an edge or a, or, or, a, or a mistrust or an agenda to it, it's, it's you know, theater's is incredibly sort of peculiar. You have to be very smart and you have to have a lot of craft. You have to have a lot of talent. But those are just the muscles. It's still this fragile heart. And the stronger it gets, the more it can sustain itself. But there are, there are key times, I think, in a rehearsal period where the wrong kind of energy in the room can kill it, can completely kill it. So I think you have to be really careful about the collaborators, the actors, everybody who comes in the room. Because the people sit in the corner going, I didn't think this was going to work at all. Then here comes, energy, here comes a negative that, energy. That energy here comes comes. And has an impact, has That's a profound right. impact on That's it right. because we're all ultimately animals. And we have this whole series of senses. We sense danger. We sense a whole series of things. And we start to receive it, which doesn't I mean I'm trying to get like, oh, sunshine. But I'm saying <laughs> it's. Uh, but you do you receive know, it. You know, you receive it, and it, 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 you know, and it can color, it can color the work. Working on Perestroika was the most fascinating thing because literally two days before rehearsal, I got five acts of a play. Through the first six weeks of rehearsal, which was the equivalent of three weeks of rehearsal, two thirds of that script changed. The actors were performing in the evening and rehearsing during the day, which required two different energies. Because when you're performing, you must be in command of everything. And when you're rehearsing, you must be in command of nothing, so you can be available to everything. So they kept on trying to, we would be discovering something, and they would go like, but, but where's the cup on the table? I don't know where the cup is on the table. But I have to wear the cup is on the table. They were trying to impose performing mm -hmm. thought process on a discovery process. And with the script changing so much, there were certain actors who were writing it. Other actors were just beyond frustrated, and, they, and their frustration was coloring the discovery process, mm -hmm. understandably so, because, you know, because of the pressures that they were on. But I, I, it was really hard, and that was why the show was so draining, because the script changing so much. Normally, you have the script that's the set thing, or you have something in the room that's the set thing. I became the constant in the room, so I had to be this deeply secure, deeply evolved, deeply patient human being. I know. <laughs> so by the time They I, made you that, dear. Huh? <laughs> say? They made you that. I, I, so I had to be this whole thing. But so that by the time I finished, I had all this anger. And I realized I had so much anger because I wasn't able to go through any emotions because if I brought any of those emotions into this room where these actors were like this, it would have <laughs> like that. So I was like, we can deal, we can deal. You okay, now the Bolshevik comes on stage during the rainstorm. No problem, we can deal. Okay, now this is not happening. And I had went through the whole experience like that because I had to be completely and totally calm. And then by the time I got through it, I was going, why'd you say that? I was just crazy. Because <laughs> I, I, I would like attack people just like, you know, my, my mother would call, how you doing? Well, it's, not, it's all right, it's going fine. I don't want to do it. You know, it was just because I was like, oh, it was rough. <laughs> Okay. I had to be the sanity in the room, which is a scary concept. Yes, that is. <laughs> uh, what is the advantage for you in directing your own plays? And do you learn anything as a dramatist when you see other directors direct your plays? That I can repeat that for <laughs> you. <laughs> what is the advantage for you? Let's take one question at a time. What is the advantage for you in directing your own plays? Um, or is there an advantage? Yeah. I think because particularly... I, I was I was I was style, I was I was working on a very peculiar and I guess I'm a certain I, I think I'm a little bit out of it but it's got no sense writing God my God that's the, but I was working on this peculiar sort of combination of how style and language interconnected 
so that style was not something that was put on a play, but that style was reflective of an inherent emotional quality. And, and there weren't a lot of people out there, because anytime anybody does style, they do this whole thing. And anytime people do language, they do just the language. Or anytime people do real emotions, they sit around and they do this thing. I was, I was fascinated how there could be emotion in this gesture and how the gesture and the language and the style were all a part in the way, in, in telling the story of in conveying the emotion and in conveying the reality. And I think I had to be in charge to evolve that vocabulary because people would hit and miss. And, and when they missed, it was incredibly painful to watch because something that could have floated was yeah. lying flat. And, and, and if I was in charge of it and it was lying flat, and I knew all the rules of it. Then I knew something was fundamentally wrong. I couldn't blame anyone for not getting it. So that, therefore, it, it, it became a shorthand for learning for me. It was also, I think, the, the key to that was that was, was working with very aggressive people, such as yourself, and actors uh, who, had, who had very strong opinions. And I think that, that was the thing that sort of saved, saved me from going, well, this way I wrote it's going to be, is that if you work with really smart people, collaborators who you respect and whose opinions you respect, you can, okay, you, can, you can decipher when they're saying, this is how it should be done because I believe it, or when they're saying, have you thought about it this way? And if, and, and, and if you work with, with collaborators who are, who are ruthless in their insistence about a vision, then it becomes this wonderfully valuable reflection provided you aren't insecure about what it is that you're doing. And I wouldn't direct a project if I, because there are times when you write a play and you're in this incredibly sort of fragile sort of state where you, you, want, you don't know it well enough to trust it to go into the world. And I would never direct it in that state. I only direct things when I feel as though they have evolved beyond a certain point. And so therefore, when the child is walking, I can trust it to go out on the world and let other people mess with it. But, if I, but, I'm feel, but I'm feeling too fragile and too protective of the child, then I shouldn't direct it. Are you going to allow other people to direct your, or you would prefer to direct whatever you write? Well, they're doing it in the regions and messing it up there, so why <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I, mean, I would love it. it. I, would, I mean, I would, I sort of, I'm sort of... You would love what? To have someone else direct? Yeah, but it's like... That's hard. I know it is hard because, <laughs> because like, when, when I see other people direct other projects, I think they're wonderfully fabulous and talented. And when I see them do mine, they mess it up. So it's the exact same people. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I've seen a couple of, also, I've wrapped a couple of museum happened. I saw a couple of, like, scary productions, which cured me of going to see them. Other color museum? Other color museum. So I went, oh, okay. The gauge was always, if they didn't paint the museum walls white, you knew something was wrong. Yeah. So, because it's like, the playwright said that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested. I'd be curious to see how much of a terrorist I would be. The main thing which I really love about, the main thing which I realized was also really a stupid component of directing your own work, when you're writing, you have nothing to do but be neurotic and be all, have all this fear going on. So directing, it gives you something to do instead of being neurotic about the writing. It's true, and that's one of the things that I love. So I, I'm not wearing, it's like, you know, I don't have time to worry about whether or not it's working or whether or not they hate it. i got to make this stuff work up here. So it becomes this sort of wonderful distraction from your own insecurities. Okay. 
here we go. What was the worst experience you have had as a director? And what did you do differently after that experience to avoid a similar situation? What is the worst experience I've ever had as a director? Mm -hmm. There haven't been any in my career. Moving <laughs> <laughs> uh, right along. Very the theater. I love the theater. Everybody loves me in the theater. Um, <laughs> um, what has been the worst experience? Oh, I can't tell that story. No, People you are still alive. <laughs> um, let me think about this. Um, I tell you the big. I, I, I tell you what. I think the biggest mistake I ever made was we would do a Caucasian chalk circle. I wanted this thing to. I wanted this very muscular, very aggressive, very physical production. So we sat around the table, <laughs> read the script, and talked and read and talked. And talk. They came in the next day. They went, where's the table? Where's the table? I said, come on, we are, we are on our feet. We, we, we're on the island of Gonab. Let's go for it. We're going to figure it out on our feet. And, and as a result of that, and I realized I did that because I wanted to get my job done. As a result of that, the actors never, ever had any ounce of confidence in what they were doing because I did not allow them to be in command of the text. I was so concerned about my own agenda that they were always playing catch-up, which, which, which then manifested itself in a certain non-confidence in their performance, which I think arrogance, I always give my little arrogant speech because I think at one point, I, it, you can, uh, uh, it's very important that actors be very arrogant about what they're doing because I think it makes an audience relax and receive the more complicated emotions that are going on as at, the characters they're playing. But I think it's very important that actors be in command of what they're doing. You know, that's why the phenomenon of, of perestroika and millennium was so complicated for the actors because they were in command, but they had to be, it was a fake command, and at the end of the day, they had to be vulnerable, and it was very hard. So I took away, by taking away that table way too soon, they, talent-wise, capable of dealing with it because they dealt yes. with it, but I think that, that psychologically, they were really sort of always felt as though they were always playing catch-up and always felt behind it. I didn't feel that because the only thing I felt having worked on the project is that they had so much responsibility more than they have ever had in their lifetimes. I mean, they would change sometimes characters on stage. I mean, go off as a person and come back as a dog. I mean, it, it was almost insurmountable. Yeah, it was, it was just I, like I a think play that's that's, you know, more than... Maybe so, because the play that's normally done with about 20 to 30, 30 people, it, it was done with 12. Creating an entire world, so it was. Tell just me about a, the backstage. This that. Oh, oh the, the backstage. That, 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 that show was just so interesting. The backstage of Caucasian Chalk Circle. I think Caucasian Chalk Circle is our finest hour. That's my opinion. The backstage was so choreographed that I never went back there. George didn't go back because it was when they came off. They had to do so many different changes, and they had it paths and I had to go back one time and almost got hurt physically hurt because it was so tight back there it was it was it was, it was phenomenal it was a movie. Was, I've never forget one of these actors one actor left his mask on the wrong side of the stage different from where he did so he had to cross through and three people literally almost got killed because I mean, yeah. it was a new path that he created and he was not in the rhythm of what was going on that should have been going on it was fascinating and that's what should have been the show yeah. really yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, what artistic challenges do you see ahead of you? And what types of projects are you most interested in working on in the near future, 
if you know that right now? Yeah, I sort of do. Um, I'm, 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 I'm real fascinated with, with seeing how far you can push the musical theater into certain boundaries. Real fascinated about that because I think there's something music, art, people trust music. And, and I think that when you hear boom, boom, boom on a, in a, on a bad, stupid musical, there's a certain part of your being that goes, I'm now available to this, whereas uh, with people watch plays and they move into it slowly like this, depending on the command. Whereas if you just hear a certain note, you trust it because it's sound and it's pure. So I'm really fascinated seeing how you can cultivate that trust in an audience at the same time take them into incredibly complicated, dangerous worlds. So there are a number of projects that I'm interested in in that respect. Um, I'm supposed to be directing an opera in about three years or something like I mean, this is people plan, you know. You'll have your tech in the summer. You'll go into rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, it's like I don't understand the logic of it, so I'm real curious about that. I'm, I'm going to be working on a play with the lovely Mr. Kushner, which possibly will be a co-production between the national and the public where we work with some actors here where we see, take a group of actors over there, do the play over there with, with partial British cast and American actors, then come back, bring back a few of the British actors with the American actors, and they fill out the rest of the cast with American actors. So that kind of sort of cultural, you know, cross-fertilization is really, really fascinating to me. You know, I'm, um, I want to write. I want to get back to writing a lot because I feel as though the in, in, the, in the mix of directing all this sort of stuff, sort of miss visiting my voices, um, and, um, and I'm, I'm writing a screenplay now, so we'll see what that is. Uh, I don't know. And, and I'd like to, I, I would like to direct a movie musical, but a weird movie musical. I don't, simply because, I don't know, I just, because I, I, I think I can learn something, a lot about theater, actually, from doing it. You know, I don't know. I, it, it, working on Jelly was really fascinating to me because as well as spunk, as well as Caucasian talk circle, because it was sort of like the vocabulary got really refined by the time it got to, 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 to jelly, just in terms of, of how stark can you make it, how, how much can people define space, what is the minimal amount of text essential to let you know where you are. So all this stuff was really fascinating to me, so now I want to sort of like, now that I think I have that language, mm-hmm. just sort of, I suppose I think with each show I was learning the language. And now I think I have that language. I want to try to write from that. Okay. Well, at this time, I think we should open up for any questions that you might have. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, actually, I went, yeah, I went to Pomona College, which is in California, which at the time had a really wonderful theater program. And by the time I, I left there, I had directed five shows, which is kind of unheard of in an undergraduate setting. I, I, I was, as an actor, I, we, we did plays in rock quarries with big, giant, you know, 30-foot, you know, creatures and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And fireworks, we would find spaces and, and, and do plays there. There was a lot of Japanese and, and no theater and stuff that was, that was passing through you know, a lot of breath. So it was just sort of like, and also I think the most valuable thing that I think I did was I've I've done everything, or I know how to do everything in the theater, but light, which is strange enough, because I think I would rely heavily on a light designer, but I was an actor and a a director and a designer, so that therefore 
so, I don't, and so that therefore I know how to talk to those people. And when people tell me something can't be done, I say, oh, no, it can't be done. It, how about this way? I can't take it to the next level. You can take it to it with, with, with your level of expertise. But I, this is what it should be like. So it was just sort of like making myself available. It's like, it's like I told this woman who, who came into my office, an Athens student. I said, overwhelm yourself. Do too much is what I would suggest. Do too much because at one point when you're unemployed, you'll sift it out. And you'll figure out who you are and who you want and what's interesting to you and what's not and what's not and what's not. So I, I would just think absorb as much stuff as you possibly can. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, I, in L.A., I, 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 see, I never, actually, I never, the thing which I never ever, which was sort of incredibly sort of like both stupid and arrogant thing on my part, I never ever worked my way up. I always did what I did. I'd get together a group of my friends, and I, and I wrote a play called The Coming of the Great God Bird Nabuku to the Age of Horace Lee Lizer. And I got together a group of mine, and I had a budget of $500 at any city cultural center, and I did it down in Long Beach, and we raided some YMCA costume shop, got out of the costumes, and I'm going into a room with my friends, and, we, and I just played that written and directed. was done. I then started teaching there. So I, I always put myself, because, you know, I'm a control freak on a certain level, in, in a position of authority, so therefore each time I did something, I learned something. I never was, like, the assistant to the director ever. Close I ever came to that, I did one summer of slave labor at Williamstown, which was actually strange enough, where I think I learned how to direct, seeing the saturation of, not from anybody teaching me, but the saturation of seeing all those enormous productions done, I guess six or seven, how many they do over summer, over entire summer. It was, so, so in, in essence, what, I would always just find a room and do my stuff. I, and I, I taught at college in L.A., and I came here, I taught at City College. I had an acting class where I taught up at the Children's Art Carnival in Harlem. I taught at a, uh, another little theater that has since closed here. And then I went into NYU to the Dramatic Writing Musical Theater Program simply because I was tired of struggling. So I wanted a, 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 a concentrated amount of time just to do my writing. And, and I realized that I had to focus in on just writing. And so then I did that and started to get some grants. And then I did a show called Paradise, which got massacred by the critics. And sort of a year later, it was called a museum. But that was 10 years, from 1976 to 1986, where I just always just found, my, found a room and did my stuff with my peers. That's sort of how I, I did it. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I think you get it, and then it falls apart. And then you get it again, and then it falls apart. Because you get it, and you go, this is the most pre perfect, brilliant, phenomenal thing I've ever done in my entire life. And the next day you go, but... And then it falls apart, and because you, it's missing a color. And then you get it all back together again, maybe three weeks later, and you go, oh, this is the most brilliant, fascinating, fabulous thing that I've ever done. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And then it falls apart. And you know what I mean? So I, I don't think you ever hit it, and, and it's it. I think what you, it's sort of like you, you, you hit it, and there's a euphoria that you feel to let you know you're right, but then it's quickly followed by a, a, somebody screwing it up to let you know it's not all there. So I think that there's this, the, the main thing I think about directing is there really is a rhythm. There's a, there, and and if, you, if you can obey the rhythm of, it, like it takes me a week to learn the energy level in the room that I need to be in charge of the room. Cause and, and also, I, it's easy, I think there are two ways to direct. Either you can be a fascist and, be, and run the room that way, or you can learn everybody's individual rhythm and then form a relationship with everybody's individual rhythm and, then in, and slowly pull them from where they are to where you are. 
ultimately that's more fulfilling. It's more draining and exhausting. But ultimately, I think you have a richer project when you get to the end because you've invited all of them, all of the people, all of their stuff there. So it's just that process that I think takes time and, and you inch people along and somebody may get there and somebody else may be still back here and then they sort of, this person is sort of stuck there for a while and this person inches up a lot and then something happens between the two of them and then it's really great. Because, I mean, I, I work very, it's like, that's why I, I love, I, have, I generally need a month of previews because I get it all there and then I go through it like that because I'm finding I do it like, I do it, you know, I, I spend a lot of time around the table going through, at Angels, we went through word for word, literally word for word, word for word, word for word, on part one, and part two, we didn't have that luxury, so as a result, of the actors felt this command, and then we slowly inched up on that thing. We had seven weeks, I think, of rehearsal total on part one, which is a frozen script, and in essence, four weeks of rehearsal stretched out over three months on an ever-changing script that was five hours, five and a half hours, I think five hours the first preview. That was, I mean, it was, it, was, it was the most insane experience I've ever been involved. Robert Wagner said, I've been in theater for 35 years. This is the worst experience I've ever had, just in terms of, my God, I'm dead. So, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's really, it's, it's, you can't jump over. See, if you hit something, what I'm trying to say, you hit something, and if you hit it too soon, that's incredibly wrong, because what you probably have is you've probably found a point here and a point there, but the real scene is this sort of complicated juice in the middle, which is where an audience gets, gets you know, you, you, you get an audience's attention by, a, by something strikingly beautiful or a really strong moment or a great laugh, and then you hopefully take them through this more complicated emotional terrain because you've got them. And then you take them out on the other side with some sort of conclusion, and that's fulfillment. And I think that every single moment and every single play is like that, that experience. So that therefore, it's a, a moment only exists in relationship to another moment, which is relationships in relationship to the to the, this com more complicated, you know, not so easily labeled, emotionally ambiguous ambiguous thing that is between those two moments. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I think mean, you, you 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 can't do that without dealing with the without the personality of the person. I mean, it's, a lot of it's cheerleading. I mean, a lot of it's cheerleading. A lot of it's, I mean, this, I mean, a lot of it's like, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, at one point, you know, someone writer told me, I have all these things in your head. I said, and we're not seeing any of them on the stage. After having gone through two hours of, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And I realized I was just getting this smoke screen of weapons and defenses, weapons and defenses. And I just went, look. So, so I think it really depends on the situation. And, and the more you can... The more you can share, I think, your thought process with somebody else. This, this, this guy named Georgi Paro gave uh, this lecture one time in college. He's a, a, a Czech director. And it, it like, explained theater. I mean, it was like, it, it explained it in the most, and, and, and he gave me the notes afterwards. And, and one of the things that he, he, he said, which I think applies to how you do it right, is he says, the director acts in front of the actor the effect of the actors acting. There's different effect. So that therefore, an actor does something. And so when you, so I would go up and, and I will do it in an exaggerated way. Because when you did that moment, I was like sitting there like this, and it was almost incredible. But when you were doing that, I was like going, I don't know what quite was. You know what I mean? I give them a response because what you're trying to cultivate in actors is their own built-in director, so that they can begin. So that nightly, they're in essence editing and directing and crafting their performance 
so that therefore you're, you're feeding into them a whole series of thoughts that are your thoughts, but making them see them in, an, in, a, in a sort of, in a way, because you become this perfect audience. That's what I think the director is. The director is the perfect audience. And he responds in a rehearsal the way 800 people would respond, so that they can mm -hmm. receive that information. So that when you're doing that with the playwright, it's the exact same thing. You know, because I was saying, you know, because I was really completely there. And then you go into this other place, and I go, I don't really care what's going on. And then you do something, and I'm back. And so therefore, you know, and if you can engage them in that journey, as opposed to saying, this scene is really bad. But you say, this scene is really exciting here, and I'm really excited right there. And then it's going through this period where I'm, I'm, I'm lost, and you're losing me. So therefore, it discredits the power of what you just created. You know what I'm saying? Engaging people in that, so that they're, you're engaging their thought process in the thought process that you're having, as opposed to doing dictum. You can do the dictum, but it requires you being a bully, it requires you being intimidating, which is exhausting. You use it if you have to, but ultimately it's more, you can get more out of people if they're caught up in the discovery, which means you have to discover. Yeah. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, I think Spunk was the most fascinating, in many respects the most fascinating way of working, because I, I knew stylistic, I, I wanted to come, with a, with, come up with a visual style that had the visceral impact that the blues had. So I wanted to be, I'm trying to come up with this, with a, with a thing which I, I think I called it sort of Southern Colored Classical Theater. And I wanted to come up with this thing. So we would take, and that piece was really fascinating because in many respects it was taking Zora's text and it was a lying like how did you first get started as a director and first figuring out if it was sung or if it was spoken or if it was, it was chanted or maybe it was how did you first and then, on, and then get started was where the song because in each, Zora had this wonderful quote, there's this essay called Characteristics of Negro Expression, which he talks about there's no, there's no uh, area of, of Negro culture that goes unadored. Each moment is a celebration unto itself. So I went, oh, okay, that's what this is. So that therefore, so, and, and that's what a blues song does. So that therefore, when Bessie Smith is singing a, a blues song, or when Billie Holiday is singing something, and she lingers on Good Morning Heartache. And that heart is inquire one act that just happened. So that therefore trying to come up with stylistically, language-wise as well as emotionally as well as physically, how to do that same phenomenon. So I, I would say the hope, I need this to be kind of like, sometimes I would be, I need to be kind of like this or something like that. Or sometimes I would give, you know, these two guys sitting on the porch, it's hot, 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 whatever. And then she'd go off. Oh, work there, and then she, we, and so it sort of was this incredibly back and forth sort of thing, and then she would feeding. take something, huh? Feeding. Yeah, so I'd feed her, then she'd feed me, then I'd feed her back, and we'd feed something, because I wanted it all to be completely and totally seamless, and, and I remember in L.A., that, that Joe Clark's porch thing, which is two guys with oh. a puppet on stage, it's like, she, she did one time, I was like, oh, and she did another time, I was like, hmm, no, 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 well, maybe, and, and it was just sort of like, because I didn't know what it was, but I knew what it wasn't. And, it went, and when it went too far one way or the other, I went, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. So it, and also, so that by the time we got to Jelly, there was like this shorthand that was going on. And, and, and certain things like, like a, a character, which I finally put into Chimney Man, so hopefully he's out of my system. There's this character named Haitian Voodoo named Baron Sambi, who's this deity who stands between life and death. And he was, he's like this trickster figure. And I, I was completely, totally obsessed with him. And he, and he was peering in, he was, he's in Spunk, he's the storyteller in mm -hmm. some respect, in the story in Harlem Slang. He, he was in the Caucasian Chalk Circle. Circle as this fire creature who would, when the whole town burned. And then finally I got the Chimney Man, and actually I was working on this other thing called Queenie Pie, 
which was a horrible experience. And, um, and he was in that, and they finally got the chimney man. I sort of worked him out because it, the, he's, he's the chimney sweeps of New Orleans is an example of it. The, the, the chimney sweeps of New Orleans were these top hats and these cutaways, where the character of the figure of Beto Sambi was a cutaway and a top hat. So I transported who was based on an, on an, on an African deity, transplanted to the New World, which I did transplant it into New Orleans, so that therefore built into, into some of the chimney man's moves was this sort of Banda-like dance that is related to Haitian voodoo processed through an American black sensibility so that therefore the Trinity man's walk and all this sort of stuff came out of that. So by that time, I would go, I need, I need a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a Banda sort of thing right here, whatever, whatever, because I realized that character, I was working something out with that character and I, and I kept on sort of playing with him. So in that case, we had a history. We, we had a working history. We had a cultural history and 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 a uh, age history that was informing certain of the choices. I mean, you know, it's like the, the Chicago uh, number in, in in Jelly, which which went through various transformations. But it was sort of, you know, these people, these Southern black people, have spent their times in little tiny little juke joints, like are in Spunk, and all of a sudden, and and they have to wear, in many respects, because I'm talking about cotton, they have to wear the clothes that are the colors of the landscape because of the racial climate in the environment. So they have to blend in. So in this tight little space, this little a number, they can do this number. And so that's why how the, that's how you jazz number evolved with, with, with Gregory and Ted. And, but then by the time they get to Chicago, it's now the 20s, and they have a whole block of a city to themselves, which means they have power. So the costumes have a certain sort of color boldness going on. But also this Charleston, which is also an African dance, becomes this joyous celebration of, the, of, of power and assertion. And this is mine. And, and I, have a, I have a town now. I'm not hiding in a little corner wearing bland clothes. I'm wearing outrageous clothes because I now have power. And so that the dance was reflective of that emotional phenomenon as well as culturally being there as well as that or not. So I think they're finding the moment and then figuring out what external rules can inform it and then feeding and making yourself available to that person's impulses. This is our last question. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, I, I mean, it's, we're, we're, working with Anna is a very complicated scenario because it's, one, it's a one-person show, so, and two, it's her doing people who are real, who, by and large, unless they're a phenomenal asshole like Daryl Gates, you really don't know who they are. So, 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 so she has all this information that you don't have. I mean, it's like Shelby Coffey, the guy who's the editor of the Times, was there last night. I had this completely different concept of who Shelby Coffey was based on how Anna had done it. And also this other woman came up to me and said, hi, I'm Doreen. And I was like, oh, you're the real Doreen. But uh, <laughs> the thing which was really interesting about that process was not a, uh, necessarily a particular character, but sort of this coming up with a, a, a concept. See, I think anytime you direct a play, I think there's what the play is about, and then there's an invisible play that nobody ever sees, that her and Marge don't get, but it informs certain choices that you make. And to me, what Twilight was really about was that there was some, I don't know, there was, there was some, that L, the concept that I had was Los Angeles found itself in the middle of Act Two with a riot, with an uprising going on, and it didn't know that Act One had happened. Because Act One was happening in this area of town, and this area of town, and this area of town, and this area of town. So, so that therefore that informed a whole series of choices that so that when we talk, you know, John and I know about this shifting vista that LA is just shifting 
sort of panoramic view, depending on what race or class you are part of, depends on your view of Los Angeles. So that therefore, so what we did try to craft was a, a piece that was really, in some respect, even though that's not what the critics write about or what audiences see, it's really about consequences. A city, or in, the, in turn, a nation, not re, an act part, act one, really dealt with the fact that it wasn't aware that there are consequences to indifference. And that, and that ignorance does not excuse you from being a part of it, because Reginald Danny has this wonderful line, I knew the verdict had come down, but at the time I didn't think it had anything to do with me. And at the same time, his life has been completely offered by that verdict. So it was, it, that, that was sort of a model of thinking about it. So we came up with this concept of this vice, so that therefore the, the, the riot, the social explosion, was not, a, was not this aberrant thing. It was an inevitability, so that therefore as you watch it, Somewhere in your back of your head, one, because you know it's happened, it has to happen. And trying to layer in the sort of characters and the sort of rhythms that will make it an inevitability and that will convey that phenomenon. So, and then we came up with this section with, where, where the section during the actual riot, which section we call Rock. And in LA, it was this story, then this story, and this story, and this story, and this story, and this story. And we were talking, I would say, but these people found themselves in a situation that they couldn't control. So that's where we came around with having six different characters tell fragments of their story so as to create inside of an audience the sense of chaos or the sense of lack of order that was going on so that one person tells this part of the story, then another person tells this part of the story, then another story, person tells this part of the story. And that's the thing, because that's what happened to me. I had friends of mine who were in Los Angeles, and that night when the riots started happening, they called me from all over the city, leaving all these messages on the machine. Saying, hi, hi, George. Uh, I've seen something burn. And somebody else, hi, George, I'm over here. And it was just really fascinating to me that all of a sudden these people who are very separate in the first part of the story, all of a sudden their stories were mashing and colliding because it took something this intense to make this city aware of itself and aware of the other people. So a lot of attention was paid to not just sort of the individual characters, but the rhythmic dynamics of each of the individuals and how they worked in relationship to each other so as to create a sensation that would put the audience either at ease or at comfort or, or place them sort of psychologically, emotionally in a state that would make them available to the material, to the thoughts. And so much of the character detail, so much of the physical detail was Anna. I think of, the bulk of my job was involved with the structuring of the story, but also more so pu pushing certain emotions in certain directions that she had inside of her already, but, you know, take this a little bit further here, would that character go that far emotionally? And yes, or da la 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 da la la da la la Because at one point, the Angela King character, Rodney Zahn, tells a story about hand fishing, and then she tells a story about the cops beating up Rodney. Th that's the way it was done in L.A. I mean, she told me, the fact of the matter is that when she told me the story, she told me the story about the cops beating up Rodney first, and then she told me the hand fishing story. I said, well, let's reverse the order back the way it was, because what happened is the woman had completely lost herself inside the story, so the hand fishing became a way for her to dig herself out of this loss of possibility and cynicism back to a time when certain cultural racial lines were not there. Because that, that, you know, she, was, she was hanging out with this Mexican guy, Sam, and all this sort of stuff. So it, 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 was, it was really fascinating. It was a really exciting. The most exciting, I mean, once we staged it, it was fine, good, smart, good job. It was a real exciting, exciting, exciting time on that project, just sitting around that table for about three weeks as we were putting that script together. Really exciting. Okay, thank you. 
Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.